0: bugs and fish that's our program for today welcome it's another look into the life and message of elizabeth elliott as she called us to live to a higher standard each day not satisfied with just a little religion instead of god's best as this series continues in the coming weeks we'll hear from family friends and others who were influenced by elizabeth's life and message we continue our extended series today about Operation Alca and other events during Elizabeth's time in Ecuador. Our two programs for today, Gateway to Joy 127, What Bugged Me Most, and Gateway to Joy 128, Being a Fish Out of Water. Also, today we have a couple special guests. Artist and speaker Margaret Ashmore talks about the first time that she met Elizabeth, also, Valerie Elliott Shepherd talks about danger in the jungle and a fun childhood in Ecuador. That's later today. Right now, though, what bugged me most? Imagine living in the jungle. What of all the things, the inconveniences, and maybe some of the danger that was there, what was it that bugged her more than anything else? Was it not having an oven? What was jungle life like, especially at night?
1: You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking with you this time about what bugged me most in the jungle. We've been telling the story of my daughter Valerie and me going in to live with the Alca Indians of eastern Ecuador. There were a good many things about our conditions there that were not exactly ones which I would have chosen, but there were a lot of things that I really loved about it, and one of them was having an open fire all the time in our house. I really didn't mind at all cooking on that open fire with the pot just sitting on the ends of the three logs, but there were some times when I would like to have had an oven where I could have baked bread or had a frying pan with some grease that I could have fried something in, but I didn't have that. I just had one pot. But it was nice to have that fire there, day and night. I came across a most remarkable piece in The New Yorker telling about the necessity of fire for certain kinds of foliage and brush. And this is what I read. Fire nourishes and rejuvenates chaparral, the impenetrable brush prickly, thick and dry, and a good deal tougher than tundra that covers the lower slopes and canyons of California's mountains. There are seeds which fall into the soil, stay there indefinitely, and, listen to this, will not germinate except in the aftermath of fire. There are basal buds that sprout only after fire. Droughts are so long, rains so brief, the dead bits of wood and leaves scarcely decay. Instead, they accumulate and thicken until the plant community is all but strangling in its own duff. The nutrients in the dead material are being withheld from the soil. When fire comes, it puts nutrients back in the ground. It clears the terrain for fresh growth. When chaparral has not been burned for 30 years, about half the thicket will be dry, dead stuff, 25,000 tons of it per square mile. Did you get that? 25,000 tons per square mile. Most chaparral plants are full of solvent extractives that burn intensely and ignite easily. Their leaves are glossy with oils and resins that seal in moisture during hot, dry periods and serve the dual purpose of responding explosively to flame. I read somewhere else that the seed cones of the lodgepole pine will open only with intense heat. Often we think of fire as being totally destructive, and yet we know the advantages that it has for us to heat our houses and to cook our food. I had never realized the tremendous advantages that it has to certain kinds of seeds and certain kinds of plant life. But what bugged me most in the jungle? Well, in a word, the bugs. If there was one thing that tried my sanctification, what little there was of that, it was those bugs. But thank God we only had to put up with bugs 12 hours a day, not 24. Not that we had screens, not that we had repellents really because we lived so far away from civilization that we just couldn't keep a supply of things like that and with no walls on your house you can't very well put screens up. But the bugs, for some reason, graciously stopped biting about 6.15 in the evening as the sun went down, and they didn't start again till the next morning. So I was very thankful for that. But during the daytime, I spent a good bit of time scratching my bug bites. I used to get these wonderful letters from people who had never been in the jungle. My mail was often dropped to me by parachute, and people would write things like, Oh, what a wonderful job you're doing, how marvelous it is that you're living there, with those Alcas who killed your husband, etc., etc., And I thought, if these people could see the way I'm spending my time, I mean, sitting here in my hammock, scratching the bug bites, trying to get the smoke out of my eyes, cleaning my fingernails because I'm always getting them jammed with dirt because of having to keep the fire going all the time. My hair started turning red because of living in the smoke. Smoke in the eyes, mud on my feet, dirty nails, monkeys, bats, snakes coming into my house. I wasn't by any means a saint. I was not unmoved by these things. When I was a college student, the word identification had a sort of romantic ring to me. I heard missionaries talk about learning to identify with the nationals, with the people to whom you go. I thought it was a wonderful idea. You become an Indian. You become a Chinese, as Hudson Taylor did. He wore the gown and the queue, and the Chinese shoes. He spoke Chinese. I wanted to become an Indian. I did not wear an Alka Indian costume. I did wear a Kichwa Indian costume, but when it came to identification, I had to draw the line when it came to the Alka costume, since that consisted of a piece of string. I mean only a piece of string. After living there for a few months, I had learned enough of the language to ask the usual stupid question that you would have asked, I'm sure. Why do you wear that string? You know what they said? Well, you certainly wouldn't expect us to go around naked, would you? So I could see that identification had its advantages, it had its limits. I couldn't do all the things that the Alka women did. I couldn't do most of them, in fact couldn't catch fish with my hands, couldn't weave hammocks or make pots. I was really retarded as far as the Indians could see. But I wanted to follow the Lord. I wanted to do what he wanted me to do without giving way to the things that bugged me. One of the things that I loved was the quiet, the peace, the simplicity of life. There were things about it that were very simple. You didn't have to make choices about what you were going to wear. You never had to worry about your hairdo. You didn't have to decide where you were going that day. You weren't going anyplace. It was simple in that way, but it wasn't necessarily simple to take care of my daughter, to see that she was properly nourished, to deal with the various little injuries and things that that happened to her. She got jungle rot, On her feet, she got ringworm in her hair. She got parasites. And cooking was not necessarily simpler than it would be on a stove. But I read in Philippians 2 of Jesus that the divine nature was his from the first, yet he did not think to snatch at equality with God, but made himself nothing. Another translation says, stripped himself of all privilege. Stripped himself of all privilege. Assuming the nature of a slave, bearing the human likeness revealed in human shape, he humbled himself and, in obedience, accepted even death. Often in the smallest hidden matters of the heart's attitude, it is that the deepest spiritual tests are given to us, and the reality of the spiritual life is revealed in those small, hidden matters of the heart. Who of those who knew Jesus here on earth had any idea of the sacrifice that he had made? He whose nature was divine, he who was in fact God, did not think to snatch at equality with God, but stripped himself of all privilege. And I find it difficult, inconvenient, not to my taste, to have to strip myself of even the smallest civilized privilege. What are the conditions of your life today in which God may be testing you in the small and hidden matters of your heart's attitude? Is it conditions at work, the office that you've got, the desk that you have, the computer that you have, the people you have to work with? Is it in the home? You don't have the conveniences that your next door neighbor has. Maybe you don't have a microwave and somebody else does. You don't have that full length mink coat that your friend has gotten for Christmas. It's in the hidden matters of the heart that the deepest spiritual tests are given. Will I accept even this as a part of the way appointed? The bugs were what bugged me most in the jungle, but I had to accept it as a part of the way appointed. No very big deal, really. And yet the sort of thing which tests the reality and the validity of our commitment to Jesus Christ. A dear lady sent me some money for screens on my house. Well, of course, I couldn't put screens, even if somebody had sent me the screens. I wouldn't have been able to staple them to the ironwood posts. You can't even drive a railroad spike into those ironwood posts. Amy Carmichael wrote, The stamp of the saint is not the metallic wrapping out of a testimony to sanctification, but the true humility which shows the fierce purity of God in ordinary human flesh. My flesh was subject to gnats, jungle rot, scabies, ringworm, boils, carbuncles, nettles, caterpillar stings, wasps, fungus, thorns, all of them small things, none of them fatal by any means. But I was reminded again and again that the true humility shows itself in the fierce purity of God in ordinary human flesh. Jesus says, God says, my grace is all you need. What is your consciousness of being in the flesh today? Maybe it's illness. Maybe it's overweight. Aging? Are you getting old as I am? Heat? Cold? Remember, Jesus Christ stripped himself of all privilege. He offered himself to God
0: gateway to joy 127 what bugged me most well as i mentioned we have a couple special guests with us today we have margaret ashmore and valerie elliot Shepard, elizabeth's good friend margaret ashmore an artist a speaker she talks about the first time she met elizabeth and about her own bout with cancer
2: the first time i formally met elizabeth was at a conference in College Station, Texas. It was probably around the end of 1997. I was undergoing chemo for breast cancer, and out of the 700 women, I was the only one attending with no hair. Uh, I'm not sure how she picked me out. It, It could have been the light reflecting off my very bald head, but I rather believe it was the Lord's sweet grace which He lavishes on the suffering. Well, during the break, she sent someone to invite me to lunch, uh, to have lunch with her. And during our meeting, it was discovered that she had kept some of my letters and as a result was familiar, though I'm sure vaguely, with my name via the signature. I I will tell you, I was absolutely thunderstruck. She went on to invite me to her home in Magnolia, Massachusetts. Uh, From there, we traveled to Europe for her speaking engagement in Hungary. To this day, I am still thunderstruck at the grace of God in allowing her to see out of hundreds of women, one bald head. While my hair grew back. What also grew was my friendship with this dear woman.
0: Elizabeth's good friend, Margaret Ashmore. Later on, we'll hear from Elizabeth's daughter, Valerie Elliott Shepard, And she'll talk about danger in the jungle, about a fun childhood in Ecuador. First, though, being a fish out of water, gateway to Joy 128. Elizabeth and Valerie lived with the Alcas for two years. The Alcas had a different name for themselves. Do you know what that was? Was there a downside to the tribal people coming in contact with others from the outside? Was it easy to find food in the jungle? And What about that time that Elizabeth went along on the hunt?
1: Any of you feel like a fish out of water today? You're in circumstances that you would never in a million years have chosen for yourself. Things just don't seem to be working out the way you thought they were supposed to. Do you think God has forgotten about that? Well, we don't usually see it while we're in the middle of it. It doesn't look as though it's opening out into any possibility of joy. But take it from an old lady. As I look back over this more than half century of my life, I can see that time after time after time, when if I had had a choice, I would have changed things. God didn't allow them to be changed. And I can thank him now. I can say, thank you, Lord, you led me all the way. Did you want me to be a fish out of water? Yes, you did, because you had something to teach me that I could never have learned anywhere else in the world. Now I want to go back to that little clearing in the jungle that I've been telling you about, where my daughter Valerie and I lived for two years with the people who had killed my husband and her father. Those people were called Aukas back in those days. We know that the name that they give themselves is Waurani, and recently some pictures of them have been shown on TV. Maybe some of you have actually seen them. But the Waurani are a very small tribe of people who live in the eastern jungle of Ecuador and up until very recently lived a Stone Age life. And we lived there with them. We had a very healthy life. We got plenty of exercise. We certainly had plenty of fresh air since there were no walls on our houses. The Alcas themselves had had no diseases to speak of until we got there. As I questioned them, It didn't seem as though they knew anything about diseases. Even malaria didn't seem to have reached them until our entrance. We took with us colds. We were not aware of having colds when we got there, but about three weeks after we got there, one of the Alka women actually died of a cold. And the Indians told us that they had never seen anyone with these symptoms before. So they had a very healthy life. Their foods were all natural. There were no additives. There was no artificial coloring, no artificial sweeteners. They had practically no sweets. They did cultivate a little bit of sugarcane, but very seldom did I ever see them eating it. Their main cultivated food was manioc. Manioc is a starchy tuber, shaped a little bit like a carrot, but very much bigger. It has a brown skin on the outside, white starchy insides, And it can be cooked in just about any way that you could cook a potato. It's really very delicious. It has to be planted. It doesn't grow wild in the jungle. People often have the idea that the jungle is teeming with all kinds of food, and all you need to do is go out and look for it. You wouldn't need to plant anything. But that's really not the case. There's very little to eat without planting. So the women had a full-time job to keep their plantations clear of weeds and to Bee planting so that they constantly had a supply of manioc. The men did the hunting. As I said, the women's job was planting, the men's job was hunting. And those men had a full time job. Virtually every day, all day, they would be out looking for monkeys or birds, occasionally for wild pigs or tapirs. And I can see those men as the sun was just beginning to come up, or sometimes before, they would head out into the forest, each man with his blowgun over his shoulder and his quiver of poison-tipped darts hanging down his back. On the quiver was a gourd that had kapok in it, silk cotton. Of this, they would make a little plunger, wrap it around the end of the dart so that the air would carry the dart through the barrel of the blowgun. Then, hanging next to this gourd, was a string with some piranha teeth on it. Have you seen movies of those very fierce little fish that live in the rivers of the Amazon basin that are said to clean an animal or a person right down to a skeleton in just a matter of minutes? Well, those are called piranhas. Many times I've asked Indians if they've ever known that to happen, and I have yet to come across an Indian who has ever heard of it happening. We swam in the river where the piranhas were, We ate piranhas, but the reason the Indian carried a set of piranha teeth with his quiver was in order to cut a little groove close to the tip of the dart so that when the dart struck a monkey, the monkey would be smart enough to grab the dart and pull it out, but it would break off at that groove, leaving the poison tip in the flesh. These darts did not kill the animals. The poison was merely a paralytic so that the animal would fall out of the tree and then usually the Indian would have to beat it over the head with a stick or something in order to kill it. If there were pigs in the area, which was rather unusual, then the Indians would carry with them spears rather than blowguns. The spears were used only for hunting the big animals or people. I'll never forget the thrill One day when one of the Indian men came rushing back into the clearing in the afternoon and he said, wild pigs, wild pigs, there's a whole herd of them, came back to grab his spears. He had gone out as usual that morning with his blowgun, but the blowgun wouldn't do any good for killing a wild pig. Their hide is too tough. So he came charging back to grab his spears. He took a whole sheaf of spears on his shoulder and he said to me, Gikadi, do you want to come? Well, normally women were never permitted to go on the hunt. They would only be a nuisance, and women can't hunt anyway. But by this time, the Indians knew me well enough to know that I wanted to watch anything and everything that I was permitted to watch. So I said, sure. So I raced after him. Believe me, it was a frantic scamper. I've never had so much trouble keeping up with somebody in my life. There was no trail, of course. He had to go across through the jungle where there were no trails hunting for where these pigs were. And how he knew where they would be by the time he'd come back and gotten his spears and started out again, I can't imagine. I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't see any footprints. But I followed them, and by this time a couple of the Indian women had caught up with me, so we were doing our best to keep up with Dabu as he raced through the jungle. Then finally I got to the point where I could hear them. It was like a dull roar off in the distance as they rushed along. I don't know how many there must have been, maybe 30 or 40 pigs in the herd. And then I began to hear them grunting and squealing. Dabu suddenly turned to us women and he said, Stand still. Shut up. Don't make a sound. So we stood still and he said, They'll come right by here. Don't pay any attention. They won't hurt you. Just stand still. So we stood, and he rushed off and disappeared into the jungle. And then pretty soon we could hear it was as though the herd was turning toward us. I began to get a little bit nervous, wondering if they might just mow us right down. And then to my immense disappointment, the sound faded away to nothing. I never got to see those pigs at all. The only wild pigs I've ever seen have been dead ones. There were other times when the hunters came back with monkeys. Howler monkeys make the loudest noise in the animal kingdom, louder than an elephant's trumpet or a lion's roar. They were their favorite kind of meat, but they would bring back any kind of monkeys that they could find, and they would eat virtually everything except the actual entrails. I have a picture of my daughter Valerie happily sucking away on the skull of a monkey. Then there was a certain kind of squirrel that they hunted just for the stomach, because the squirrel fed on a particular kind of palm fruit, and they would cut the squirrel open, take the stomach out, cut open the stomach, and consume its contents. One of their favorite foods was grubs. I have to confess this was not my favorite food, those big, fat, white grubs that feed on the heart of a palm tree. But I have to say, that I had learned, if you're going to sing where he leads me, I will follow, you must be willing to sing what he feeds me, I will swallow. And so I swallowed a few of those grubs. Then they would go fishing with spears. The women would go fishing with their hands. We had some very interesting menus. Alligator tails occasionally, armadillos, and ants, flying ants. Everybody would sit around the pot together, throwing the bones over their shoulders, slurping and sucking. I was thankful for all this, thankful that God was providing our needs in all kinds of ways. I'm very thankful today that the experience of living with those people has permanently altered my perspective. It's given me a vantage point from which to view my own civilization, my own presuppositions and prejudices. It's given me an ivory tower from which I was able to see things which I could not otherwise have seen. It's given me just a very tiny taste of the incarnation. He who was God became a man. Did I feel like a fish out of water? Have you had an experience which made you feel very much out of place? Jesus' love brought him out of the ivory palaces, as the hymn says, into a world of woe. Hebrews 2 says, He became a human being so that by going through death as a man he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might set free those who lived their whole lives a prey to the fear of death. He was made like his brothers in every respect. My living with the Aukas gave me a glimpse of what that meant for him, just the tiniest glimpse. And it gave me an opportunity to know him, to identify with him, to enter into his life, to let him enter mine, and to live his life in me.
0: Gateway to Joy 128, being a fish out of water. Well, we're just about out of time, but we're going to take about four and a half minutes right now to hear about Valerie's experience in the jungle. Was it a good experience? What was her childhood like for those two years or so spent there with the tribe?
3: And when we were in the jungle, we were, of course, among very dangerous creatures. The Lord allowed, uh, the Lord protected us so that no, no snake ever bit us and no poisonous spider Ever gave us any illness. Uh, The worst thing that happened to me was bumblebee stings one day when we lived among the alcas. But I just remember having a ball playing in the river. We had a baby otter for a while, which was a joy. Um, Building fires with the alca kids. Of course, my grandparents were weren't too thrilled about that because of the safety of it. And we had little knives that we could quiddle sticks with and. The Lord protected me all the way. But one particular story, and I know some children are listening, one particular story about God's protection is when I went to bed in the little hut without any walls and I was on a bamboo bed and my mother was in a hammock right next to me. And she prayed, we sang, Jesus, tender shepherd, hear me, bless thy little lamb tonight. Through the darkness be thou near me, keep me safe till morning light. There are three lovely verses to that, and I won't quote them all, but she would sing me many wonderful hymns, but I remember especially that one. And one night as she woke up to stir the logs, to to push the logs together to keep the fire going that we had to have because it was quite cool at nighttime, she looked over at my bed as she always did, and there was a, a black circle on my stomach. I was underneath a blanket. And so she touched it with the stick that she touched the that she pushed the logs together with and it was a black snake and it just smoothly curled uncurled itself and slid off into the jungle and of course it could have been very poisonous she didn't tell me at the time i was probably too young to even understand but the lord protected us amazingly and uh, i'll never forget seeing an ocelot being caged uh, by the aukas they had set a trap for it And in the middle of the night they woke us up to come and look at the ocelot in the trap and i remember thinking how fierce and angry it looked and the lord protected us from those night creatures which were panthers and ocelots and so anyway there were anacondas in the river we never saw them that i remember so i'm just so very grateful for how god um, protected my mother and me and very clearly led her to live with the alka indians along with rachel saint and i'm so thankful that she never showed any fear to me if i had seen her alarm and fear and worry all the time that would have made me alarmed and fearful and worried all the time and i never saw it so i'm very very grateful for that example she said that Maybe inside she might have been fearful at times, but she never let me know it. And in that bedtime routine, there was this confidence and security that the Lord was watching over us. As uh, meal time was the main thing I had to come to, I had to obey her about. Uh, of course, I was always hungry and uh, we had sometimes jungle trips with the Alcas where we didn't have anything to eat for most of the day. We might've had a little cup of chicha, which is chewed up manioc, cooked and then chewed up by the Alka women. And that gave us some starch for the day, but we went one time all day long. And when we arrived where we were supposed to be, my mother looked at me and said, are you hungry? And I said, yes. And she said, what would you like to eat? And I said, rice and egg. So rice and egg was a common food if we had eggs, but Anyway, I digress. (laughs) Um, The Lord used her to teach me to look at things practically and to do things as efficiently as I could, and yet I still struggle in my own lack of efficiency. She taught me that obedience was very important and that I was never to talk back to her, which I don't remember doing, but she taught me that it mattered what we said and what we did. Uh, we were to bring glory to God in all of our behavior.
0: Elizabeth's daughter, Valerie Elliott Shepherd. Well, it looks as though our time together is once again at an end. Let me thank you for coming along. Maybe we found you at home or at the office or out uh, taking a walk. Wherever we found you, thanks for uh, spending some time with us today. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network... Let me invite you to check out all the resources available for you at ElizabethElliot.org. Until next time, may God remind you daily that you're loved with an everlasting love, and underneath are what, yes, the everlasting arms.